people, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away and reserved in heaven for us. In other words, it is permanent and it is certain. And it is understanding the ultimate end of this kingdom and the ultimate end to which we have been saved and the ultimate end that God has called us for that enables us to think rightly about this world now and to live rightly in this world now, whether it be in times of prosperity or, which is more of Peter's emphasis, and the theme of Scripture, particularly of the New Testament, in times of suffering. It is the reality of our end. It's been often said in many ways, and very truly, that we cannot live rightly until we grasp death rightly. We can't live rightly in this world until we understand the end of it. And we can't conduct ourselves rightly and with the right kind of encouragement in this world until we understand the ultimate end of our own lives and the purpose for which we have been saved. So God in grace has called us, is conforming us to Christ, and will bring us safely to our heavenly home. This is the worldview that sustains God's people throughout the ages. So let me read in 1 Peter 5, and I'll read in actually beginning in verse 8 down to verse 11. We'll be looking at verse 9 and 11. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil... Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. These are his closing words to this church and of this epistle. And they're words that pick up the very beginning of the epistle, which was a reminder that God has, by grace, called us into fellowship with himself and has given to us, as I mentioned earlier, an inheritance, a kingdom, a salvation, a redemption that is going to be revealed at the return of Christ. And it is a redemption that is certain and sure and cannot be taken away. That's what frames our worldview and our understanding of this life. And he noted then that the way that we stay diligent or diligent in keeping these promises at the forefront of our mind is to realize that we have a myriad of distractions from keeping us from this kind of focused view of the future and of redemption. And we have an adversary that prowls around seeking to destroy this hope in God's people and to destroy God's people himself. And so we are to have controlled minds. We are to have disciplined minds and disciplined lives being sober. That is sound of sound mind, of self-disciplined mind. And we are to be watchful and alert. That is not to be dull and sleepy, sleepy and lazy spiritually, but to be paying attention to those things that are a threat to us. But God has assured us of victory, and so therefore he says in verse 9 that we can resist him firm in the faith, actually firm in the promises and the reality of who Christ is and what he's done and what he's promised. We looked at that last week. And now he's encouraging with the second part of verse 9 to remember that as you engage in this battle in this world and as you engage in your struggle against the flesh and the world and the devil, that you're not alone. That we have, together with all who are in Christ, a common bond in Christ. And so he says, 
Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the first part of standing firm is to be resilient in resisting Satan's ploys. And the second part is simply this. Know that you're not alone in the struggle. Know that you're not alone. Suffering is not unique to you. Suffering is not unique to any one people at any one time. It is common for the people of God, and we share that suffering together. We share it as the body of Christ. So Paul said in Colossians 1.24, he says, I am doing my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we've noted that. It's not lacking in Christ's afflictions in terms of his suffering as an atoning sacrifice. It is to say that the world's hatred against Christ has not been fully spent, and so his people who are his presence on earth, his body, are filling up those afflictions to their fullest measure until he would return. And so the experiences of struggles and difficulties and the methods of Satan's attack may differ in their intensity, may differ in their, differ in their details, but they are equally born in one sense collectively by the body of Christ. Collectively born by us all. We share a common bond with every believer. With every believer. And knowing this is a motivation for perseverance. That's why Peter mentions it here in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's a motivation to continue on, to say continue on, persevere. One is because others have gone before you and are persevering now. And two, because in your perseverance you encourage others as well. They see you persevere and they are encouraged to continue on. And so... We together share then the hatred of the world, the world's hatred against Christ. The world here is, is variously understood, but he, he means here simply by the world this. The world uh, uh, that consists, that is uh, all the known world at that time. In other words, your brethren who are scattered throughout all of the globe, throughout all of, particularly in their mindset, the Roman Empire. Those who are scattered everywhere who are experiencing the same suffering. Brethren whom you've never met. Brethren who you don't know personally. But they are your brethren. And they are suffering. And you share that suffering with them. And so it, he means here your brethren who are in the world. Simply to say your brethren who are everywhere in the world. But there is by inference here too. Your brethren who are in the world who are in the same hostile world as you are. The same world that is in opposition to Christ. The same world that is under the influence of the evil one. The same world in whom the spirit of this world operates. That is the world that is against Christ. And that is the world in which you with your brethren share the suffering that is meant against Christ. And this is, of course, a common a New Testament particularly encouragement or exhortation that if you're here and you are a Christian, you will suffer. It's inevitable. One made a perceptive comment on this. Let me read it to you. The opposition the Christians face from their non-Christian contemporaries is not something that they can avoid by modifying their behavior or adapting their beliefs in such a way as to escape such opposition. Only by completely abandoning the gospel and the community shaped by it 
Only by submitting to the satanic forces that stand in total opposition to God can they escape the persecutions they otherwise face. What's perceptive about that comment? Well, it's this, that if we don't arm ourselves with the reality of suffering, then the other direction we may go is to compromise on the truth to avoid suffering. And that's not what we are to do, and that's not what God has called us to. That's what much of the church has done, accommodated the gospel so as not to be as offensive, so there would be less suffering. But the gospel is not an, cannot be accommodated to the fallen mind. The truth of God cannot be accommodated to a falling world. The church cannot, if she's going to be faithful, escape the suffering that comes to her by being a mouthpiece for that truth and a representation of Christ. If we are to be faithful in this world, as Paul said, then we will suffer. Then we will suffer. But the comfort here for us, and, and we, of course, experience very little of the kind of suffering that many of our brethren have throughout the history of the world. We're not likely to be burned at the stake. We're not likely to be thrown into prison. We're not likely to have our homes taken away and our children come and taken in the middle of the night and carried off somewhere. Those are real experiences, even today, of some Christians. But the reminder and the comfort here is for us that whenever adversity does come, or if those kind of afflictions do come, that it's not unique to us. We're not alone. Others have endured them as well and persevered to the end. And they stand to us then as an example. And it's a reminder to us as well to remember to pray for them. Sometimes when we suffer, we can have a woe is me attitude, as like we're being singled out out of all of God's creation to experience difficulty. Uh, but that's not the case. And we don't know what kind of suffering is going to come our way. And that's why we don't want to take these promises uh, lightly, because certainly the principle of these promises apply to us in whatever kind of trials and difficulties come into our life, either by God's general providence of humbling and shaping providences, or whether in actual suffering for the gospel that goes beyond mere ostracization or insults to actual physical suffering in some manner or some form. We don't know what he has, and so we, we're wise to arm ourselves with the understanding of God's purposes in this world. And we need examples, and that's the important thing here. And that's really what Peter is reminding us of, that we need examples. We need those who have suffered well. We need examples of those who have endured well. We need to look at them. We need to learn from them. We need to be reminded of them, we, uh, from them. We need to be reminded and encouraged to walk the same path. Let me just give you a few examples. This is common in Scripture. Paul said to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. At the end of his life, he said this. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In other words, Timothy, follow my example. He wrote to Timothy, who himself was timid because of the persecution that was coming to him. Timothy, who was tempted to compromise on the gospel because of what it would cost him. And Paul is saying this in part to give Timothy an example to say, Timothy, look at my own life. I finished my course and now I can expect the reward of my faith. And I can expect to, with joy and a clear conscience, enter into the kingdom to which I have been called. And Timothy, you can have that same joy. Timothy, you persevere and be faithful. And it would then spill out to all of those in the church to say, be faithful to the end. Why? Look at my example. Look at my example. 
when those who were suffering at the hands of the Jews, all kinds of persecutions because of the testimony of the Son of God, those, he says, who were made a public spectacle, this is Hebrews 10, through reproaches and tribulations, those who lost property, he said, you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, those who were outcast in the culture, those who lost their material possessions, those who were insulted and threatened by their own countrymen, how does he encourage them? How does he encourage them? That's the context of Hebrews chapter 11. He says in introducing this chapter, we're not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And let me give you some examples of the histories of God's people going all the way back to Abel of those who persevered in adverse situations because of their faith. Those who persevered to the end. Those who knew what it was like to be removed from family and country land. Those who knew what it was like to be misunderstood. Those who knew what it was like to experience real physical suffering, those who knew what it was like to be put to death with fire, the sword, who in weakness were made strong, those who knew what it was like to hide in caves and goat, went about in goatskins and being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated, who wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, those who knew what it was like to suffer, but they persevered to the end because of their faith. And what was their faith in? Their faith was in what God had promised. At the end of Hebrews 11, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, even fuller realization of the promises of God, even a fuller experience of the salvation that God anticipated or that they anticipated is ours. The point is, is Look to those who have gone before and drive, drive encouragement. I hope that you take time to read biographies. Do some of you read biographies? You don't have to say it. That's the great advantage. We should read about church history. We should be aware of the voice of the martyrs or whatever of those who are suffering now. We need to be thinking about that so we can pray for them, so that we can be prepared ourselves. You need to read biographies of faithful men and women who endured difficulties and trials and learn from the lessons they learned, be encouraged by how they overcame weakness. That should be always be a regular part of our reading. God has given us examples, not as mere points of interest or sermon illustrations, but as encouragements to live the life, life of faith. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, you became imitators of us, in 1 Thessalonians 1, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They looked at your faith, and then they were encouraged to persevere. They saw how you received the word and immediately received tribulation because of that word, and you persevered, and you became an example to them. Of course, ultimately, that example for us is Christ himself. The writer of Hebrews saying, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Peter gave the same example. Look at him. He was an example, though being reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him 
who judges righteously. The point that Peter is driving us to, and that really all of Scripture is, is saying, look, realize you're not alone in your suffering. Whatever trial you have is not unique to you. Whatever difficulty you have, even in living righteously in a marriage, of living righteously in the workplace and suffering, of living righteously in your community and in your neighborhood and receiving difficulties from it. You're not alone. You're not alone. Persevere. Whatever difficulties and challenges you face from your peers, whatever difficulties and challenges you face within your family, because of the gospel, know that you are not alone. You can persevere. Others have gone before you. Satan tries to silence that witness, to defeat Christians through their suffering. But he says here, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit has said, don't let that, in fact, be the case. Look to those who persevered and followed their example. Let me note this. He also encourages us in that truth to know that God sovereignly measures out our suffering and the suffering strengthens our hope. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Your, your suffering is something that is measured out by God's purposes. Now, he's already set that in the context in verse 19 of chapter 4. We've looked at that. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Your suffering is measured out by God. Your suffering is not random. Your suffering is not under the ultimate authority of Satan, your adversary. Your suffering is by the hand of God. And that should be a great comfort. Uh, John says in Revelation chapter 2, let me just give you a couple. Just listen, I just want to illustrate that point. He says to the suffering church at Smyrna in verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Why? Because he's an adversary who wants to silence you. Picking up on Peter's idea. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. This is only a test. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Remember that this is a suffering that is measured out by God's hands. Where do you see that in verse 10? You will suffer for 10 days. Do you think those who were causing the suffering said, we're going to do this for 10 days? No, that was God's sovereign decision to say, this is how long I have determined that you will suffer and that you will be tested. Persevere. He says the same thing to the church in the end time. In Revelation 13. After acknowledging the rise of the kingdom of the Antichrist, he says this. And you can just listen in verse 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He was given authority. It was given to him in verse 5, up a little bit, to speak arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Do you think the beast and the rise of the Antichrist said, I am going to enact my reign of terror and I'm going to give myself 42 months to speak blasphemies? 
course not. That was God sovereignly declaring that for this period of time, these are the atrocities and the suffering and the blasphemies and the sin that I have allowed to have reign to accomplish my purposes. He's sovereign over it. The suffering does not come at the hands of sovereign earthly rulers or a sovereign Satan. They come by divine permission according to his eternal purposes at the hand of a sovereign God, as Peter will remind us at the end, who has dominion over everything. And so we're to find encouragement from this, encouragement. God has measured out our trials. He's measured them out. As a perfect father, he knows the limits of his people. He knows the grace that he supplies, and he knows that he has a wise plan that he is accomplishing in our lives. And knowing that strengthens our hope. It strengthens our hope. The Christian, he says here, looks to those who suffer with them, to the brethren who are in the world. He says, are being accomplished. Uh, one way to understand that word, being accomplished is a good translation, but is this, uh, that is being brought to its full completion, is being brought to its end. In other words, is being realized in its fullness according to the purpose of God's. One noted aptly commenting on that aspect of the term. That thus the Christian awaits not the end, but the suffering of the suffering, but its goal. And that's the idea here. Is he's pointing to them not so much that that is a suffering that's simply being accomplished and a suffering that will end, but he's saying a suffering that has a purpose and a goal in, in it. And that goal, he's going to mention in verse 10, is to be brought perfected into his eternal kingdom. And this is the last point then in verse 10. How are we encouraged to endure suffering? To trust in God's gracious promises. To trust in God's gracious promises. Again, this is a theme already noted in Peter's epistle and the scripture that we are to live as God's people and in fact we do live as God's people based on his promises. We live by promise. If you ever think about this, that ever since the beginning of the fall, of creation under the curse of the fall, man has lived by promise. The righteous have always lived by promise, by what God will do, what God has said he will accomplish for us. Adam and Eve had the promise of blessing if they continued in obedience before the fall. And then afterwards, they had the promise of redemption. It was a promise passed down through Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, David, and on through the line. It was a promise that the people of God in the Old Testament lived on, a promise of one who would come, a promise of redemption, a promise of peace, a promise of a kingdom, a promise of a righteous ruler, a promise of a Messiah that would come, that would come. Now, even after the appearance of Christ, though we see the much of that promise fulfilled, we live based on what God will do. We live based on a promise, and that's the form that Peter puts this here. It's a promise. It's what God will do in the future. It's what he's promised to you. It's what he said he would do. And we live in the same way based on that promise. And what is the promise? It's profound and yet simple. The promise is simply this, that God will bring about his purposes in Christ, and one day we will know the fullness of everything that God has accomplished and arranged for us in him. That's it. That's the promise, is that we know that in the end, 
we will experience a glory and participate in a glorious kingdom that will never be taken away. That we will know the full reality of what he promised, freedom from sin, freedom from weakness, freedom from tears, freedom from the tyranny of the evil one in this world in which we live, and even of it in our own lives. And this is what he points us to. And look how he starts it out. After you have suffered for a little while, he reminds us first then of God's character, the God of all grace. The God of all grace is going to accomplish these things for you. This is an incredible statement and encouraging. Why? Because in times of suffering, it can be hard sometimes to see and to find rest in the goodness of grace in God. But we can never lose sight of this because if we do, we lose hope. If we lose sight of the goodness of God in our suffering, then we lose hope. And sometimes suffering people may think or be tempted to think of God as uncaring, God is distant, God is uninterested in our suffering and our difficulties, but this is a wrong view, and Peter will not allow that. God will not allow that. He already said, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The anxieties that come with your suffering, the, guide, the anxieties that come with the uncertainty of your future, the anxieties that come with the fear of persecution, cast them all on God. Why? Because he cares for you. He is not distant, he is not unconcerned, but he cares for you. But when suffering, we can forget that sometimes. We can forget it in times of testing and be like, well, God, where are you? And when God's people suffer, the wicked at the behest of their leader, the evil one, try to stoke that kind of fear and that kind of anxiety in God's people. Listen to Psalm 42. It says, this, my tears in verse 3 have been my food day and night while they, who are the they, the wicked, the unbelieving, the godless, they say to me all day long, where is your God? If your God cared for you, why is he treating you like this? If your God is good, why are you suffering like this? If your God is powerful, why isn't he delivering you? If your trust is real, why are these things happening to you? Tears have been my food, and they mock, and they say, where is your God? Sounds like what they did to Christ, doesn't it? So in verse 10, the shattering as the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, and they say to me all day long, where is your God? And sometimes God's people can struggle with this internally in suffering and feel that way. Listen to Psalm 77. The psalmist says this. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. He goes on to speak of his hope. But in that moment, what he feels is, has God forgotten to be gracious? Peter says, the God of all grace, but sometime in the midst of it, we can feel like, has he forgotten about that grace? Has he forgotten that, or has he put me aside? Is he no longer going to show it to me? Job was a righteous man and had those kind of thoughts. Listen to some of the things he said in his suffering. 
Job 9, 17 through 18, and verse 23 says this, For he bruises me with a tempest, and he multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but he saturates me with bitterness. He mocks the despair of the innocent. In chapter 10, he said this, You renew your witness against me. You increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Verse 19, he says, Know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Have you ever felt that way in the midst of a difficult trial? It can happen. It can happen with God's people. That's why we need these reminders that Peter gives to us, that God's word gives to us. Job was corrected by a reminder of God's infinite power and wisdom and that God works in ways far deeper than we can understand that we can ever discern fully in this world. Therefore, he is to be trusted beyond our circumstances, beyond our fears, and beyond our pain. Why? Because he is a wise God, and we can't even begin to even come to the edge of the depths of his wisdom and his power. That's his encouragement to Job. The psalmist was encouraged by Remembering God's past works and his compassion by remembering that God has proven and will always prove to be faithful to his covenant, though it may not be felt in that moment. Peter points us first to the reality of God's unbounded and unrestrained grace that has secured for us and will succeed in bringing about the promise that he has made in his son. And that defines then the entirety of our existence as believers, that we stand in grace. After you've suffered for a little while, while you're suffering and whatever suffering may come, remember that the God of all grace stands over them. The God of all grace. In 2 Corinthians 1, in the midst of deep, deep suffering, he calls God the God of all comfort. In other words, every comfort comes from God. Here, every grace comes from God, and he is overflowing in his desire to show them to you. So hold on to that, God's character, and hold on and anticipate the wonder of future glory. What is the God of all grace? What has he done? What will he do? He has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, and he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What is the essential expression of this grace? That he has called you, beloved, and me, and all of the believers, to be a part of his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Those words can sound so systematic and doctrinal that we almost forget the weight and glory of them. He has called us to share in his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, some manuscripts. His eternal glory in Christ. What is the call here? What has this God of all grace has done? He has called you. What kind of call? He's talking here about the effectual call, the determination of God before the foundation of the world to make certain that you would participate in his accomplishment of redemption. That's the call. There was never any possibility if you know Christ that you were not going to be a part of these promises, that you would not know the fullness of the reality of this redemption. Listen now, just listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. Those he foreknew, and remember, this is in the context of suffering. 
Those whom he foreknew, that is those whom he knew with a personal kind of relationship, the kind of foreknew, same term that Peter used to say of Christ that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is not, as we've mentioned before, bare omniscience as if God just simply knows a fact. This is to say that he knows personally, he knows intimately, he knows by name, even before he created you. God did not merely look down the quarters of time and accept whoever would turn for him. He determined before he created time who he would draw into fellowship with himself. He foreknew by name, by person, and those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. Why? Because this calling is not a bare acknowledgement of his saving purposes, but it is that the gospel would come with all of the power that Christ purchased. It would come with regeneration. It would come with the gift of faith. It would come with the gift of repentance. It's a call that would make certain the salvation of those whom he foreknew. It's a call that makes certain that Christ's death would not be in vain for those for whom he died. It's that kind of call. It's a call that's consistent with God's eternal purposes in Christ. Let me just read some of this to you. 2 Timothy 1.9 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me as prisoner. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but listen, according to his own purpose and grace which was granted to us personally. Granted to you, beloved. When? When did he grant this to us? granted it to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's when he granted it to you. Now it's been revealed by the period of Christ our Savior who abolished death and brought immortality and light to life, or immortality to light through the gospel. What has this God of grace done? Not only has he accomplished redemption, he has called you. He has be called you because he foreknew you. In foreknowing you, he predestined you to participate in the fullness of his son's work. In predestining you, he has called you and made certain and given you everything that would make efficacious or clear or certain your participation, your coming to Christ, your believing in him, your embracing him, your repentance toward him, your faith in him. In your faith, he has justified you. He has counted you righteous. And in his justification, he has determined and settled and made absolutely certain that you will be glorified. That's what Peter's referring to here. The God of all grace has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Nothing can change that. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can make that an unreality. And so hold on to that. Hold on to that. And again, these are things that Peter has already made clear. He said at the beginning, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again. Why? Because he foreknew you and he predestined you to a living hope through the resurrection. 
God has called you. How? Because you were born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So that when you heard the word of God, it was attended with the power of the spirit and it produced life and faith and repentance and hope. And it brought you into union with Christ so that you're not merely a bunch of random individuals running around, but you are a part of, as he said, a spiritual house, your living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But what again still does he mean by he's called us into this eternal glory in Christ? What does it mean he's called us into this eternal glory? What is the eternal glory in Christ Jesus? His eternal glory in Christ Jesus. If we read this Trinitarianly, it is the Father's glory in Christ what he's emphasizing here he's the father has called you into his eternal glory in christ jesus a clue is given in chapter one he says you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb and blemish and spotless the blood of christ he was foreknown before the foundation of the world has appeared in these last times for the sake of you listen who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. What is the clue there? He gave him glory, his glory that is given to him at the completion of his work as mediator. He died, was buried, he was raised and in that resurrection, the Father bestowed on him a glory as the mediator that we participate in. It was a glory of the Father and the power of the resurrection so that our faith and hope are in God. And we see it was God's power and it was God's plan. It was God's purposes that brought this about. It's a glory of Christ as that mediator, the one who would come and to take on that role of being our substitute and our sacrifice who would be raised and who would be Lord over all. It's that glory we get to participate in. His glory in Christ. What is his glory in Christ? It is the glory of redemption. It is the glory of his eternal purposes to save us and to bring us into fellowship with his son. That's the glory. It was God's eternal purpose in creating the world to bring glory to himself and the redemption of sinners in Christ Jesus. That was the reason that he created. That was why he created all things. To bring glory to himself and the redemption of sinners in his son. To enfold them into his eternal fellowship with the son. To participate in that fellowship as an extension of his love to his image bearers. To forever live in a new heavens and a new earth in his presence in glory and joy. That's why God's called us. He didn't call us to just limp through this life so that at the end we could go to something better. He's called us to something far more grand, his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul said it's a kind of glory that, and wisdom that he set up so that all the angelic world can marvel at it. So we who know Christ, you in this room who know Christ, are the fruit and the display of this glory. Christ and God are the objects and essence of it, but we are the reflection of it. We are the participants in it. 
Again, Peter's already noted this throughout the epistle. He says our faith will resound to his glory in verse 7. We've read this many times. Even though tested by fire, our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes and gives us gifts and we serve one another, it is so in verse 11 of chapter 4 that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God's purposes, God's character are put on display and God is honored and God is lifted up and God's God's work in his people is made manifest in Christ. That's the glory. We participate in it now in small measure, but we will in the future in an unbelievable fullness when he returns. Paul says when he comes in 2 Thessalonians 1.10 to be glorified in his saints. This is marvelous. Paul said this to the Ephesians. We won't get much further than this today, but he says this. Listen to what he says. After, after in Paul's own language to the Ephesians, delighting in and declaring these same truths that Peter is drawing us to, namely that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's how that we would be holy and blameless before him, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He's done all of these wonderful things. And then listen to what he says after he lays this out. Paul says this. In verse 16, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And what is this spirit of wisdom? What is this spiritual of revelation? What is this knowledge of him that he's praying that they might see? It is this, verse 18. That the eyes of your heart, that perceiving reality inside of you, that part of you that can comprehend the glory of God, that can issue forth in praise to God and worship to God, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what is the end of his calling, what is the glory of his calling, what is the promise of his calling. This, he says, what are the riches of the glory, and here, catch this, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is his inheritance? You. That's the glory. That's the glory. That you may understand fully that you are his inheritance. You are the fruit of his work that will bring him glory. You are the gift that God the Father has given to the Son. You are the ones that he has redeemed so that you could be forever a reflection of his glory and participate in everything that he accomplished for us. And Paul says, my prayer is that in your heart, in your mind, as you think about these things, as you consider them, that he would give you an understanding of how great and glorious that hope really is. How great and glorious the end of your calling really is. You are Christ's inheritance. You are Christ's inheritance. You are what God the Father has given to Christ as an inheritance. And the idea here, too, is this, that out of all of the world, 
all of the world that has fallen, all of the world that is under the curse of God that we were a part of, as he says later in Ephesians, you too were dead in trespasses and sins. All of the world that is under the condemnation of God, all of the world in whom the Spirit is working in the sons of disobedience, all of the world whom he says at the end of verse 3 is under the wrath of God. Out of all of that world, this world ultimately that in the end will be condemned, God has kept a portion for himself. That's the idea. And out of this portion, he's given himself an inheritance. And he said at the head of that, and over it all, Christ, the Son. And who is that inheritance? Who has he kept for himself? You, if you're a Christian. You. And he says, I pray that you would be understand how glorious that is, how wonderful it is. What is your identity? That you belong to Christ. That you have been called out of this world to himself. For his own glory. To be his own treasured possession in Christ. And so when he says here that he is, after you've suffered, the God of all grace who's called you into his eternal glory in Christ, into that eternal display and visible reflection of all his manifest perfections as they have been gloriously, gloriously demonstrated in Christ in his work of redemption, all of the wonders of the kingdom, all the wonders of his holy love, all of the wonders of everything that he has given to us, which is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He says later in Ephesians, he's raised us up with him. He's seated us with him at his right hand. We get to participate in that. That's what he wants us to understand. And if we understand it, as he says, going back to Ephesians in chapter 1, Three times he says, what is the end of it? That it might be to the praise of the glory of his grace. That the God of all grace has called us to this. The God of all grace has planned this. The God of all grace has purposed this. The God of all grace will accomplish this. The God of all grace will bring it about for us. And that we who belong to him then will forever be, even as we should be now, to the praise of the glory of his grace glory of his grace, the wonder of his grace, the magnificence of his grace. More to say about that glory. We'll pick it up there next week and finish. But this is the wonder, beloved. This is what we need to pray to God for. That he would show us this glory. Help us to taste of it. That we wouldn't live these mediocre kind of lives of worship. That we wouldn't be those who are so easily shaken when adversity comes, but we would stand strong because we know where we stand in God's eternal purposes. That we would be those that could have confidence and stand firm in an hour of testing and against the evil one, the adversary who wants to make us fall. Why? Because we know the kingdom that we belong to. We know the God of all grace who has called us. We know the glory that is ours, and so we won't be sucked in by the empty glory of this world. And we won't be ultimately defeated by the threats of this world. Because we know the eternal glory in Christ that we have been called into. And knowing that helps us to live wisely, helps us to live confidently, and even when we sin, we know that that's not the end of the story. 
God has shown us grace. And God will, by grace, sustain us and uphold us and carry us. Even though we fail at times and are saddened by that and frustrated with our struggles, at the end of the day, our end is certain. And that's what encourages us to deal with sin. Not to be okay with it, but that's what encourages us to confess and to repent and be reminded of these glorious realities. That's what encourages us to be strong and to persevere. And he sustains us in that. Let me pray and then um, John will come up and lead us in closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Your goodness to us who deserve wrath. We deserve condemnation. And what do we experience? Overflowing mercy. Kindness. Goodness. God, help us to never substitute the empty glitter of sin. Help us to never give in to the false promises of this world. That can cause these true glories these realities, even as we'll consider next week, to seem dull, to seem uninteresting, to seem dry and distant. But as Paul prayed, we prayed together that you would enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our heart to lay hold of this so that when we think rightly and we see rightly and we feel rightly, then it's just the opposite. It is the glory of your kingdom that captures our attention. It is the glory and the holiness of all that's been promised to us that draws us to you. And the kingdom of this world, as the song says, will grow strangely dim. The enticements grow weaker. The foolishness grows more foolish. The unbelief grows more stagnant. Strengthen us in our walk. Give us discernment. Help us to love your word above all else because it's there that we learn of this kingdom and the God who has accomplished it for us. And Father, any, of course, who do not know you, we pray that you bring them to see the glories of Christ and to embrace you. And it's in the name of Jesus who died and rose again for us, we pray.